You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. So if you have your Bible or your ESV Scripture Journal, our text today is Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Exodus chapters 3 and 4. The journals did finally come in. And uh, we gave out a couple of hundred of those this morning. I hope you got here early enough to grab one. I think there are still a few back there in the foyer, so if you miss them on your way in, uh, feel free to take one on your way out today. Do write your name in your journal, as there are now hundreds of them floating about. And if you leave yours sitting around, we want to know uh, to whom we should return it. So put your name in the journal and bring it with you each week of this Exodus series so you can follow along in the text and take notes or make lists or sketch or whatever it is that helps your mind remain engaged as we study God's Word together. If you are willing and able, I want to invite you to stand this morning in honor of the reading of God's Word. To get us started, I want to read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Exodus 3, verses 1 to 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet... It was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of my all-time favorite novels is Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow. It's a bit like uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, if you know that one. It's a reflection. The title character, Jaber, is a barber and a grave digger and a church janitor in the small town of Port William, and he reflects back on his life. Think of all the conversations he would have had over the years as a barber with such a wide variety of people. Think of the things he would have seen working in a church and especially working as a grave digger. Throughout the book, Jaber looks out at the world and he tells us what he sees. And his observations are so incredibly perceptive. Every time I grab this book off the shelf to use it for illustrative purposes like this, I find myself saying, oh, I just want to reread the whole thing. There's a chapter toward the end called On the Edge. And in this chapter, Jaber reflects on his life. Listen to this. I can't look back from where I am now and feel that I have been very much in charge of my life. Certainly I've lived on the edge of the Port William community and I'm farther than ever on the edge of it now. But I feel that I have lived on the edge even of my own life. Well, I've made plans enough, but I see now that I have never lived by plan. 
Nearly everything that has happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise. And whatever has been happening usually has already happened before I have had time to expect it. The world doesn't stop because you're in love or in mourning or in need of time to think. And so when I have thought I was in my story or in charge of it, I really have been only on the edge of it, carried along. I wonder, is this because we are in an eternal story? All the important things have happened by surprise, Jaber says. I think Moses would have spoken very similarly of his life. We've just started this new study going through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, one of the great epics of history. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God directs his gracious gaze to a man named Abraham, and he promises Abraham that one day, Abraham's descendants will become a great nation, that they will eventually make their way to a great land, and that through them, all the nations of the earth will one day experience great blessing. That was God's promise to Abraham. Exodus picks up the story hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later. Abraham's descendants have indeed expanded. They have become a great nation. The Israelites, they've become. But they're not living in a great land. Not even close. At the beginning of Exodus, God's people are enslaved in the land of Egypt. They're slaves to an anti-God tyrant, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh sees the people of Israel as a threat to national security. They are too many and too mighty, and so he enslaves them and eventually tries to exterminate them. His attack on the people of Israel constitutes an attack on the God of Israel. This is why I say Pharaoh was an anti-God tyrant. The Pharaohs, you must remember, saw themselves as divine beings. This man thinks he is the supreme force in the world. This man thinks that all should bow to him. But as the story unfolds, we learn that he is simply a wannabe God. He's a wannabe God, and no matter how many policies he issues, he cannot thwart the plan of the one true God. In Exodus chapter 2, which we looked at last Sunday, we meet Moses. And it seems that Moses is being protected, raised up to one day be the rescuer of God's people. But Moses' story takes an unexpected turn. Rather than waiting on God's timing and God's instruction, Moses takes matters into his own hands. He murders an Egyptian taskmaster. They find out about it. He's now a wanted man. And so Moses is forced to flee, to run away, to leave Egypt, and to leave God's people behind. He travels to the land of Midian, and there in Midian, his life goes on for many, many years. Not days, not years even, but decades. Back in Egypt, the Pharaoh, his life comes to an end, and he's replaced. And the people of Israel, still enslaved, cry out to God for help. At the end of chapter 2, we read these words, and this is where we left the story last week. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. As we move into chapters 3 and 4, 40 years 
have passed. Moses is now somewhere around 80 years old. Half of his life has been devoted to shepherding. That's what he became when he had to flee to Midian. But now, the story of his life is about to change. Suddenly, unexpectedly, all the great things have happened by surprise, Jaber said. The God of grace breaks into your life and mine when we least expect it. And he rewrites the story. He draws us into a new and better story. It's exactly what he does with Moses in this passage. This is one of the best known passages in the whole book of Exodus. When Moses meets God in the burning bush on the mountain. We'll divide this passage into two parts, just two parts. First, the divine initiative to restory us. The divine initiative to restore us, that is to rewrite our lives, to draw us into that new and better story. But secondly, the human impulse to resist. First, the divine initiative to restore us. Start at the beginning of chapter three. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. Moses expects a standard day as a shepherd. But we, as the readers of this story, we are alerted to the fact that this is not going to be a standard day at all. In fact, something spectacular is going to happen because Moses finds himself at the mountain of God. If you've been at Faith Church for any number of years, you've probably heard me talk about the thin places. The thin places are those places in creation where we go. And there, for whatever reason, we sense the divine presence in a heightened way. There's just something about that place. For many of us, it's the river. Because the river, it shows no signs of history. The river leaves marks, but it doesn't bear them. It just flows. For others of us, it's the ocean, because it seems endless. And for others of us, it's the mountains, because of their might. This mountain, the mountain of God, where Moses is, on this mountain, heaven and earth meet. We're told in verse 2 that an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. But then in verse 4, when the voice comes from the bush, it's said to be the voice of God. So what's happening here? Is it an angel or is it God? Well, we're not really sure. Either an angel appears momentarily to prepare the way for God, or what seems at first to be an angel is later discovered to be God himself. Either way, what Moses notices is fire, a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. The fire, as we'll see in a moment, represents God's holiness. And when you think about it, fire is very fitting because on the one hand, we are drawn to a fire, aren't we? Don't you just love on a chilly night, gathering around the fire, staring at it, watching the flame dance? We're drawn to the fire. But on the other hand, we say to our children, never play with fire. Never play with fire. Fire is good, but it's not safe. It's not safe. Moses sees fire representing the holiness 
of God. And there's something very mysterious about this fire in this bush. The bush is burning, and yet somehow it's not consumed. Now, I remember a few years ago, my Theology on Tap men's small group, about this time of year, we were gathered around a bonfire and we were throwing the previous year's Christmas trees into the bonfire. Now, if you've never done this, you should at least YouTube it. It's an amazing sight. That tree is consumed in moments. But on this day, somehow, the bush is burning and yet it's not consumed. Moses is intrigued. He wants to know something about, something more about this. It's a very natural part of creation. It's a bush. But it's not, it's not normal because it's not being consumed. So he inches closer and as he does, he hears a voice. God calls to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. From the bush, God speaks. Do you see what's happening here? God enters his creation, the bush, in order to transform the story of Moses' life. In the same way, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered his creation to transform our stories, each and every one of us who call ourselves believers. God speaks from the bush, and because this is God, the creator of all things, he knows Moses. He calls him by name, and now that he has Moses' attention, he tells him about the proper posture, the approach that is befitting a creature in the presence of his creator. Moses must humble himself. Two words summarize God's directive here. Distance and reverence. Distance, do not come near, God says. And then later, we see that Moses hid his face. Distance and reverence. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In the Bible, the word holy, simply put, means to be set apart, to be unique. This ground, this mountain is unique. Why? Because God is there and God is unique. God is holy. There's no one like him. And in the presence of this, the one true God, Moses must humble himself. And now with this proper posture, this humility, Moses is ready to listen to what God has to say. And this is where God gives him the mission. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Friends, God knows your sufferings, whatever they are, he knows. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. And then in verse 10, come Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now God tells Moses why the dissension to this mountain, why the burning bush. God has come down. He's come down to deliver his people. The time is now right. 
Now God speaks and gives instruction. Now he will deliver his people. That long ago promise given to Abraham, it will come true. They will become a great nation. They will have a great land and through them all the nations of the world will experience great blessing. Israel will participate in God's plan for the world. But for all that to happen, for all that to happen, Moses must participate. Do you see that in the text? God says in verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. And then in verse 10, come Moses, I will send you. I will deliver my people and Moses, I will send you. At this moment on this mountain, Moses is being summoned into a new story, a new and better story. No longer will he be a shepherd. That life of 40 years, he must now leave behind him and he must go back to Egypt and he will lead God's people out of slavery. He's being summoned into a new and better story. Believer, God has done something similar to you. He took the initiative, revealed himself to you. Make no mistake, on the mountain this day, Moses does not discover God. Moses does not find some better plan or purpose for his life. No, God reveals himself to Moses. He breaks into Moses' life at the most unexpected time. All the great things have happened by surprise, Jaber said. Believer, God broke into your life. He initiated a relationship with you. He saved you and he has summoned you into a new and better story. He has restoried your life in the same way that God says to Moses here, I have come down to deliver them. God says to us, I have come down to deliver people from the power of sin and evil. God wants to deliver people in your family people in this community, people in the nations we pray for every Sunday morning here at Faith Church. And he says to us, I will send you. Each one of us is being called to participate in God's plan for the world in some way or another. To some of you this morning, perhaps God is saying, it's time for you to leave your life in Seminole and go to a new community. Go to this nation. Maybe he's saying that to you today. For others of us, maybe God is saying it's time for you to leave your comfort zone. Leave it and go to that family member, that friend, that coworker, and share the gospel with him or with her. We are being called in the same way Moses was called so long ago. Moses hears this call, the call of the almighty, one true creator God. But at first, he doesn't want to obey. He doesn't want to submit to this restoring. So part two, the human impulse to resist. In chapters three and four, Moses will make several excuses. He'll give reasons for his resistance to God's plan. We can categorize these reasons. We can group them into four groups. The first category has to do with identity. First, Moses' identity and then God's. Chapter 3, verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses knows that for the past 40 years he's been a shepherd. He's a nobody. This is like sending a janitor 
to carry a message to a president. It just doesn't make sense. Moses objects to the whole idea because he sees this as being a story for heroes and he's no hero. He's a shepherd. But Moses must come to see and we must come to see that God does not choose us because we are useful. Rather, in choosing us, he makes us useful as we submit to his summons. Doesn't matter who you've been. God's choosing of you is what makes you useful. At first, Moses can't see this. He's unwilling to see it. But God responds, and God will respond to each one of Moses' excuses. God says in verse 12, But I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this same mountain. See, at this point in the narrative, we discover that this mountain of God, the mountain where Moses is called, where he's commissioned, this is Mount Sinai. The same mountain to which God's people will return after they've been freed from Egypt in Exodus chapter 19. And God gives Moses this guiding vision. He's saying to Moses, the work before you will be difficult. It will not be easy. But here's your guiding vision. Picture in your mind's eye the day that Israel is free. And all of Israel will gather here at this same mountain to worship me, the one true God. Israel will be set free from something for something. They will be set free from slavery for worship and witness, participation in God's plan for the world. This is your guiding vision, Moses, and this vision should transform the way you think about all the challenges that are coming your way. That's the first excuse. It has to do with Moses' identity. Who am I? Who am I? The second excuse also has to do with identity, but now it's not Moses' identity, it's God's identity. Look at this one. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses has just said to God, God, who am I? And now, in essence, he says to God, God, who are you? Who are you? This constitutes a request for a deeper understanding of God's character and purpose. See, Moses knows if he just shows up in Israel and he says to all the people of Israel, guys, bring it in. I got good news for you. I heard a voice in a bush. That's going to lack persuasive power. There's, no, there's not going to be a revolt that's going to happen. There's no escape from Israel with just that level of knowledge. So he's asking for a deeper understanding of who God is. And so God responds. He responds with some of the most enigmatic sentences in the entire Bible, but oh, they're so important. We must pause and think about them for a few moments. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he goes on to say, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What in the world does that mean? I am? Moses asked for a name. God gives him theology in a name. I am 
in Hebrew, it's just four letters, Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am. It comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to be. God says, not I once was. God says, not I will be. He says, I am. He's teaching Moses and he's teaching us something about who he is. I am. There's constancy here. God is unchanging. I am. There's a perpetual presentness here. God is ever present with his people. I am. Also notice, God does not say, I am like, nor does he say, I am who you want me to be. He says, I am. He's incomparable. Can't compare God to anyone. This is the creator of the universe. And God, he will not be defined by someone else. He is self-defined, self-sufficient. I am. This is the God who was with Moses. This is the God who is with you. Whatever it is that lies before you, the ever-present God, I am, he's with you. He will never leave you. That changes everything. But even after hearing this, still Moses is not quite ready. He continues with his excuses. Category two has to do with plausibility. Plausibility. Chapter four, verse one, Moses answers, but behold, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. In other words, now he says, why would the people of Israel believe a story like this? What good reasons will they have to believe that God, you have sent me? And so God again responds. Verse two, the Lord said to him, what is it that is in your hand? And you can read the details at the beginning of chapter four later. But what God does is he places within Moses' hand three powerful signs, three miracles. And these miracles show that Moses has indeed encountered the one true God of the universe, the God who is powerful over nature, the elements of nature, the animals of nature, and powerful over people themselves. And each of these miracles has something to do with transformation. Why? Because God is about to transform the situation of his people. He gives Moses these signs, these miracles, but still, Moses is not ready. He continues with his excuses. Category three has to do with his ability. His ability. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses immediately thinks of his weaknesses. If you could change one thing about yourself, I wonder what it would be. Most of us have something that immediately comes to mind. Some perceived defect. It's exactly how Moses was. 
Moses thinks he is incompetent to lead God's people because of some speech problem. We don't know exactly what this speech problem was. Was it psychological? Was he super shy and scared to death to speak in public? Maybe. Was it an actual speech impediment or disability of some sort? Perhaps. We don't know. Whatever it was, we know how God responded to it. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Moses, who made your mouth? Moses, who made you? I did, and I don't make mistakes. I don't make mistakes. I gave you the stature you have. I gave you the personality type you have. I gave you these strengths and not those strengths. And where you are weak, I will be strong. I will be strong. See, if you think God is calling you to something beyond yourself, the key is to take your eyes off yourself, instead directing your gaze to God. I am. He's with you. And where you are weak, he will be strong. But still, Moses isn't ready. He continues with his excuses. One last category that has to do with responsibility. Verse 13, Moses said, oh my Lord, please just send someone else. Just send someone else. Now Moses just tries to shirk this God-given responsibility altogether. God, surely there's someone else, someone better suited than me. Someone with far more experience in this field. Someone with less mileage on the body, a little more fuel in the tank. Remember, Moses is 80 at this time. But God knows. God knows that Moses is the man for the job. And so he raises up Aaron, Moses' older brother, to be his partner in this mission. And God promises both Moses and Aaron, he will give them the words and he will show them the way. And finally, Moses is out of excuses. And it's time for him to start trusting in God's promises. Now, what about you, believer? What sort of excuses have you been making? It's time for you to start trusting in God's promises. On the mountain of God, we learn that when God calls you, when he summons you to a better story, you must go. You must go. And you must go with the confidence that the ever-present God, I am, is with you. He's chosen you not because you're useful, but in choosing you, he will make you useful as you submit to his summons, his restoring of your life. You must go. And you must go knowing that the destination, it will be a place of extravagant blessing. No doubt about it. But you must also know this. The journey there, it will not be an easy one. After God reveals his name to Moses, he says to Moses, when you get back to Egypt and you gather the elders of Israel, they will listen to you. And sure enough, they do. But God also says to Moses, the Pharaoh, 
He will not listen. In fact, God puts it like this. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Later, and rather mysteriously, God will say, I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. How does that make any sense at all? Hardness of heart is part of God's good plan? What in the world is God up to? How does that make sense? You'll find out in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to open and study your word and go to the mountain of God. This place where you, the creator of all things, you made yourself known to Moses, called him to participate in your plan, restored his life. And God, we see how you have done the same thing for us, all of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've revealed yourself to us. You've saved us. You've summoned us to a new and better story. Just like Moses, we have our excuses. Each and every one of us will at times feel unready, unworthy, therefore unwilling to submit. God, I ask you to work this truth deep down into our hearts today. You choose us not because we're useful. You choose us not because we're without flaw, but in your choosing of us, you make us useful as we submit to your summons. So help us to be faithful. Give us the courage we need to step out, to stop making excuses, and to trust. To trust in your promises, knowing that you, God, I am, you are with us. In your name we pray. Amen.